0: Welcome to Crossroad International Church, where it's all about Jesus. If you are in Kuwait and looking for a church to call home, we would love the opportunity to welcome you at one of our Friday services. Now, here is this week's message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to twenty-five, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. God's word says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just have a few uh, questions for you just to be thinking about. How does God change our lives? How does he renew us? How does God fill us and sustain zeal? How does he infuse godly passion into dead sinful creatures? How does he impart holy desire How does God change our lives? Uh, We don't know for certain who penned this letter, the book of Hebrews. We do know that God wrote it through this preacher. So we've continually referred to him as the the writer to the Hebrews. Um, Christians in the first century, we know that they started out really well. Their journey began well. But now they're facing a lot of external pressure. Pressure from the community around them, perhaps for their own families, because of one person, Jesus Christ, and their faith in him. Now, we've looked at 10 chapters, uh, a massive amount of proclamation. Um, Now, the Hebrew writer himself in the last chapter would say, I'm writing to you a brief word of exhortation. Brief. But do you all have it in your mind? Do you have it in your hearts? We've been soaking in it for many months now. This letter, this letter is largely theological. It's telling us what to think, what the truth is about God, what the truth is about Jesus Christ, and how to think. But the biblical writers and God himself never gives us theology for theology's sake. He doesn't want us just to sit down with a cup of coffee and have a good discussion and leave it at that. And so in this passage, we see a shift from theology, and it should be moving us to doxology, which is glory, honor, praise in our practical lives. We see the biblical writers taught us this is the truth. This is what to think about Jesus in comparison to many other things in our world. But this has to affect how you live, it can't just be a message that stays under a basket or in the corner of a room. It's something that is to change us from the inside out, to affect our minds, to affect our hearts, and to move out in our hands and our habits. The preacher was writing to a persecuted, storm-tossed church. There's no time for, for, for brief talks over coffee and tea. What do these people need to keep going? What do they need? Their zeal is waning. They started out so well, as we'll hear, uh, maybe next week. I I don't have the preaching schedule uh, memorized, but the end of chapter 10. They started out so well, but how will they finish? The Hebrew writer doesn't want to leave it up in the air. And so he's going to do everything he can to encourage these people to stir them up. And so let's look at our passage. Therefore, brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. As many times, Pastor Steve has said, therefore, look for what it is there for. Basically, the writer to the Hebrews is confident and believes deeply that this message, believed in chapters 1 to 10, deeply believed, will bring about a transformation in the life of the believer. All of us need renewal. All of us need encouragement. All of us need stirring throughout our Christian lives. And so we see in this letter a shift from doctrine to duty or from creed, um, as we're saying today, to conduct, from precept or instruction to practice. And so if you're taking notes today, this passage is just six verses, and I'll give you a brief, very simple uh, outline. Number one, we have access to God two, through our advocate, and finally, three, admonitions. Access through our advocate and three, specific admonitions. As I read the passage again, notice the word since two times and let us three times. Hebrews 10 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Since, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you have to realize this is an amazing statement. No one, no human, no mortal man would ever dare to walk before the throne of God on his own. Even the high priest went through every specific instruction that God gave him for the sake of his own life and obedience to God. But now it says we have confidence to enter into the holy of holies, the holy places, the very presence of God. You and I have access to God. How? By the blood of Jesus. A few few weeks back, um, we were looking at chapter 9, and I just want to point out one verse Verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is a massive verse. We see in this verse the Trinity. We see the eternal Son by the eternal Spirit offering himself to the eternal Father, purifying our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. What Christ has done in our lives on our behalf is meant to give us access to God the Father. So press in to the Father. Access. But we have access, verse 20, through our advocate. And it says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We have access to God by the blood of Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. You might recall Matthew 27 when the court when the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, bottom as Jesus was nailed to the cross. In that moment his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and gave us access and it says through the curtain that is through his flesh. We looked at a few weeks ago that without the shedding of blood There is no forgiveness of sins, but there has been shedding of blood, the blood of Jesus. And that means forgiveness of our sins. And that means in Christ, we can walk into the presence of God. The crucified Christ, curtain torn in two, Christ opened the way for us to have access to God. And coming to God, you might think, a lot of times we might think that Jesus loves me. I know this. He died for me on the cross. But maybe God, the Father, just tolerates me. (laughs) Maybe he, you know, is kind of standoffish. But no, the scriptures tell us the the Father himself loves you. And this love that the Father has is the core of who he is. And it overflows within the Trinity, within Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And this love spreads spills over through the sacrifice of Christ. And I've said it before, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the exact representation of his nature, the writer says in chapter one. This passage also reminds us of what the Hebrew writer has said before. He repeats himself a lot. And so if we look back to Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 to 16, we see this same uh, reality that we have access to come to God our Father. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may have received mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So we have access to God. Verse 21, we have an advocate, a representative. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, because Jesus is our representative, it reminds us of the old covenant that the high priest uh, would wear a priestly garb, and he had beautiful garments. Uh, twelve beautiful stones were fashioned around his chest, right over his heart. And on his shoulders, he had stones as well. And these for the, were for the remembrance of the sons of Israel. These jewels were represented, the twelve tribes of Israel, the people of God. The high priest was their representative, their advocate. In the scriptures, though... 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 we're told this my little children i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous jesus is our ultimate advocate and he's not ashamed to represent his brothers he bears our names not just over his heart on his garments, but in the nail-scarred hands. He purchased us with his blood. And the very center of his being uh, is where we are. The scriptures tell us we are in him. We are in Christ. We are in our advocate. Because you are in Christ, Christian, have confidence to enter into the holy of holies. That's that's an astonishing thought. There was a high priest, and I know it's a story long ago, the great high priest, and he wore all this garb. I'm just trying to picture what that looked like. But, but you, you, put on the garments, walk in. You're the high, you can have access to God. You, in Christ, in him, we go to the throne, the Father's presence. So this is the source of our confidence. Jesus is both our access, and he's our advocate his torn body, his shed blood, provide our access to the presence of the Father. Next, we have three admonitions. So we have access through our advocate, and there's three um, almost commands, but they're encouragements. Let us draw near, um, the first one. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, In our bodies washed with pure water. We see here in verse uh, 22 that the Hebrew writer wants the people of God to take advantage of the access they have by drawing near with a true heart. A true heart is one that is not divided, one that is focused, one that has wholeheartedness, sincere, true, engaged, a real heart, a genuine heart, absorbed in God Himself. We live in a distracted world, don't we? The digital age and all of its opportunities are something to be very mindful of and intentionally discerning about. At any moment, even right now, you're probably getting a text message. But God wants us to draw near to Him. He doesn't want us to live distracted lives. He doesn't want us to be mastered by anything except for God Himself. Draw near with a true heart, with a focused heart. Are you having trouble focusing? Are you having trouble drawing near? Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He was taking sin very seriously. And no, our hand doesn't cause us to sin. But he was telling us, metaphorically, that take sin seriously. And if there's something in your life that is keeping you from drawing near to God with a true heart... Consider ways that you might cut it off so that you can have full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The blood of Christ cleans us on the inside, our hearts, and then it says our bodies washed with pure water. And this reminds us of our baptism. For centuries, Christians have been baptized in response to Jesus' command in Matthew 28. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that He commanded us. Baptism shows us that an external witness or an external um, expression of an inward reality, that God has changed us on the inside. And so we go down in the water and we are uh, in union with Christ. united in his death and raised out of the water, uh, united with him in his resurrection power. Next, hold to the hope. So let us draw near. Second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There is an interesting study done by a professor in New York University. He interviewed 3,000 people and he asked them one question, what have you to live for? A lot of the people said answers like, I'm waiting for something to happen. Next year, such and such is gonna happen. I'm looking for a better time. I'm waiting for tomorrow. Essentially, 94% of his answers were people that were enduring the present and waiting for the future. They were merely surviving Uh, One poet put it this way, Alexander Pope, he wrote, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. What is he saying? Man is not blessed presently, but one day in the future he will be. So many people live on so little hope in our world today, just surviving from day to day, putting one foot in front of the other. But we have a Christian hope And our hope is substantial. We have an anchor for our souls. Recall recall with me Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In any storm, a, a sailor, He might be incredibly strong. He might have years of experience. But if the storm clouds are coming and the lightning bolts are thundering, or lightning and the thunder, uh, and the rain is coming, he's not going to put his hope in his own ability, but rather in his anchor. And we have an anchor that's not at sea. We have an anchor that is in the very presence of God. And his name is Jesus. And he bled and died for his bride, for his people. And as we sail through life, we will face storms, we will face troubles, but we are anchored to our advocate, Jesus Christ. We must hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. The last admonition in verses 24 and 25, consider one another. So we have access to God Through our advocate, let us draw near and let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. In verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, I praise God that you're here today. Um, It shows me that we're following what Scripture says. It says here, not neglecting to meet together. And here we are. But many are afraid, and many have, I mean, people have thousands of reasons to stay away from church. And this is not a new problem. Some of the reasons people stayed away from church in the first century might include persecution. If I go to that fellowship my father or my mother or my best friend or the person down the street on the dirt road will say something negatively of me and it could actually threaten my very life. There was a huge cost of discipleship in the first century. They might be mocked. They might be cut off from their families. Others didn't go to church because of apostasy. They weren't true believers in the first place. And so they, when, the, when the going gets tough, they got out. Other reasons people stayed away from the church were, was pride or arrogance. I'm better than those people. The reasons we have in the 21st century are not too different. Um, perhaps we're lazy or tired or busy or we're hurt. Have any of you been hurt by someone in the church before? Some of us might be prideful or arrogant as well or critical. Some of us might have a consumer mentality. That's not what I'm looking for. I think I can find something better on Amazon. No, God is working in His people and he believes in the local church. and he has a high he has some incredible things to say about his church, as I want to look at and just briefly in a moment. But other reasons that I've run into, just talking to people, and I've been really working hard to get one of my friends to engage and come and, and fellowship with the church. And and it's difficult sometimes. But a, a, a reason, you know, bad theology, poor preaching, like I'm sorry if it's poor preaching, like come back to church next week. Um, <laughs> yes, we have to hold... The church leaders accountable to this. We have to be teaching the word of God, but we'll never survive if we think it's just me and Jesus. When the going gets tough, when persecution comes, or when hardships come, or even the, you know the, this thing, the coronavirus. the coronavirus, we won't make it in our faith if we think we can just do it on our own. There are many biblical reasons to gather together. One of them is simple, obedience. God has told us here in this passage, meet together, don't neglect it. And when we do that, that produces joy, joy in our relationship with God. But there's also joy in fellowship with one another. And I know you've experienced that. And the the New Testament writers talk all about that, the joy that we have. Paul even calls churches his joy and crown at different points. Also, a benefit of gathering together, um, the presence of God is here in the gathered people of God. God comes and dwells among his people. And we don't have to invite him. He's here. We can acknowledge his presence. And when we gather with the church, we experience the presence of God. Another thing is corporate worship. You can't do corporate worship on your own. There are no solos in corporate worship. And we gather as a choir of people who are passionate about the same Lord, the same Savior, the same God. And when we gather corporately to worship God, something unique happens. And God's word ministers to us with unique power. Martin Luther said something like this. He said, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. I don't know if you're like Luther or not, but at home he's pretty cold. But when he comes to church, he gets sorry fired up. He gets fired up. <laughs> Theology. Another benefit to coming together, we're obeying God, we experience the presence of God, we can worship Him together as a family we can get warmed up, is theology. Forsaking Christian fellowship hampers one's theology and doctrinal understanding. I don't care how many books you read. I, like, I love to read. It's, it's my number one hobby, <laughs> probably. Um, but having a conversation with another person about something I'm reading is far more yeah. enjoyable than just trying to talk with people that don't talk back to me. I write a lot, but it's incredible when, when a brother or a sister asks me a question, I think, yeah, I want to show you that from the, from the Scripture. And we can develop theology together as a family. And, and, and the, the New Testament tells us to do this, to learn corporately with all the saints. And, and Paul even expands it even more in the epistle to the Ephesians. He says, we are united together with a church universal all over the world, but also throughout history. And when we come, we are sharpened. I've been challenged in my thinking about God through different people in my five years in Kuwait, and I've been strengthened in my understanding of God through my brothers who share what's on their hearts. So gather together, share what you're learning about God, and do that to stir one another up. Another benefit is psychological in theory, you might be able to develop your faith and your hope in isolation. But I, I'm i not going to dare you because I tell my students, don't dare each other. That's a whole thing. But try to love, try to develop and grow in your love in isolation. You might be able to develop your faith or your hope, maybe love for God. But can you learn to love people by yourself? God is triune and we're made in his image. And developing love is a communal activity of the Godhead and of his bride, which he calls the body of Christ, the church. Now, I just have to share something that is so important for us to understand. In his book, Union with Christ, I would highly recommend it. I love to read books, but um, it's by a man named Rankin Wilborn, and I know that's hard to probably remember, but it's called Union with Christ. It's a white book with blue on it. At the end, he says this. He's quoting Martin Luther King Jr., who said, There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Who can really hurt you? I mean, who can really hurt you? The person who can hurt me the worst in this whole room, and I trust her the most, (laughs) is my wife. You might say something, and ouch, that hurts. Or abiel, that preaching. I mean, come on. Um, But if she said that, I'm like, wow, that hurts. Because I have such a deep love for her. And so that's where the deepest disappointment can come. So I have a plan. I'm going to make my heart, I'm just going to close the door, even to my wife, and then I won't be disappointed. The problem with that, C.S. Lewis said this, is love, by definition, is vulnerable. If you close your heart... You can't just open it up so easily. he says, even if you love an animal, I mean, you're going to be hurt. But you can close it up, and what will happen is it'll become cold, and it just won't work anymore. And if you look it up, C.S. Lewis says it way better than I did. But our hearts, if our hearts are open, they can be hurt. But if they're open, they can be healed as well. And in union with Christ, um, Mr. Wilborn says this.
1: We're in danger
0: of radical individualism in the Western church in particular today. But he said union with Christ means we are part of a larger family, a broader mission, a longer story, a bigger world, a deeper love. Christian community is not an ideal that we have to try to realize, but it's rather a reality that God created in Christ in which we may participate So you claim to be part of the body of Christ? The Hebrew writer says, now live like it. Live like it. D.A. Carson says this in his book, Love in Hard Places. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, not common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort, Christians come together not because they form a natural co-location, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Union with Christ overturns what naturally comes to mind when we think of family. Jesus had hard things to say about family. He said, if you love your mother, your father, in that culture, in that day, you loved your mom and your dad. But if you love them more than me, you love them more than the one who created your mom and your dad, then you're not worthy of me. But today, many have a low view of the church. You might have heard of uh, what Gandhi said about Christians. At one time, he said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. But can we say this today? Can we say Jesus, yes. Church, no. We might try to, but God didn't just die for you and me to be united to the head, which is Christ. God died for you and me to be united in his body. And it says, God so loved not just you, he did die for you, And then uh, the 99, leave the 99, go after the 1. But God so loved the world that he so loved the church. But when we make the gospel primarily about us as individuals and the benefit it brings to us, is it so surprising the church comes across as an unnecessary add-on, excess baggage, baggage as an easy target? So basically this... I love Christ, but I don't love the church. The New Testament teaches us that the church is the body of Christ. And if I said to my wife, I love your face, but your body, I mean, I would be in so much (laughs) trouble. So much trouble. So much trouble. I would have to go back. I'd have to become friends with Talibat and Carriage. (laughs) So, Brothers, sisters, you're my brother, you're my sister. So if someone hurts you, that is normal. That's part of having your heart open. But no, we can't say Jesus, yes, church, no, because Jesus is united to his church. And one thing that is beautiful about scripture, it says that the bride, the the body of Christ is also the bride of Christ. And one day, one day she will be absolutely perfect. And, and it says in Revelation that, uh, I believe it's chapter 19, the bride has made herself ready by her good deeds. And so what does the, the the writer say here in Hebrews? The last verse, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near. The day he's referring to is the day of the lord this day is revealed to us throughout scripture and i just want to look at a few passages one is found in a short book in the old testament called zephaniah three chapters but look at zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14 you see the day drawing near the hebrew writer reminds them of verse 14 zephaniah 1:14 the great day of the lord is near near and hastening fast The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the lord their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the lord in the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed for all for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth A day is coming, friend, believer, brother, sister, when God will make all wrongs and put them to rights. And we will see Jesus like we have never seen Him before. He has a sword coming and He will execute justice and judgment. And it is righteous and true are His ways. But if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 9... Verse 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in closing, I just, I want to ask a few just really practical questions. This last encouragement that the Hebrew writer makes is consider ways to stir one another up. He says think about it. I know a lot of times we think about our own lives my plans, my relationship with God. But he says, think about other Christians. Think about ways that you can stir them up. And this is an extremely strong word. It's used most of the time negatively. It's like a sudden convulsion or a violent emotion. It's used in Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. There's a stirring. But we're supposed to prod one another in good ways. How many of you grew up with a brother or a sister? Anyone? I did. Two sisters. And they prodded me a lot. Uh, but I love them and I'm thankful for them. And the writer to the Hebrews says, How how can we be positive irritants to one another? Well, one way is this we can pray for one another. It's this simple. If husband is having a grouchy day, pray for an attack of niceness. Or brother or sister. It's that simple. Pray, ask God to do something, and he will. Um, Another way we can positively stir up love and good works is by example. Uh, Love and good works are more caught than taught. Uh, When someone comes and does something in my life, as an example, it it, it can change our lives. Just seeing them, just being there. Uh, Another way is God's word. Internalize it and let his word flow through you in your relationships. Finally, an encouraging word. We can have amazing power to affect someone's life through a small, encouraging, sincere word. So live lives provoking one another through prayer, example, scripture, encouragement. So we have an advocate who gives us access to God. Do you need to be in his presence? Yes, we all need to be in his presence. But we are a family together. And so continually be drawing near to him, And then draw near to one another and prod one another, encourage one another, stir up love and good works. How does God change our lives? How does he renew us? How does he fill us? How does he heal us? He does so in his church. Have you ever been, I asked earlier, have you ever been hurt by the church? But have you ever been healed in the church? I have. I've met an incredible church that helped me in the most difficult year of my life. They walked with me daily, encouraged me, prayed for me. God is so good, and he works through his people. May we be, as Jesus said, salt and light and shine and preserve and provide favor to a cold, dark world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. Just help us. Thank you that the Hebrew writer is so practical that he wants us to take what we know about Jesus and to put it in our lives and help one another grow. So many times we think narcissistically, we think about ourselves, we think about our own relationship, we're in danger of radical individualism, but you've called us into a family and you call us the body of Christ. Help us to just go into your presence, into the Holy of Holies, and then take that into the church which will spill forth into the world through love and good works. And yes, the day of the Lord is coming. The day is drawing near. Judgment will come, and you will take all wrongs, all evil, and get rid of it and make it all right. Help us to do this as that day we're just getting closer and closer, um, step by step. Father, let this word be applied to our lives, and may we just bring you joy and experience the joy that you give us in fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.